Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the New Books Network. You're listening to New Books and Geography, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host for today, Stentor Danielson, from the Department of Geography, Geology, and the Environment at Slippery Rock University. Today, I'll be talking to Mitul Barua, author of Slow Disaster, The Political Ecology of Hazards in Everyday Life in the Brahmaputra Valley, Assam, published this year by Rutledge. Dr. Barua, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. To start off, why don't you tell our listeners a bit about your background and how you came to write this book? Okay, thank you very much for the question. Uh, so I am an assistant professor of sociology, anthropology, and environmental studies at Osoka University in India, which is uh, uh, located close to the capital city, New Delhi. Uh, my research broadly, um, you know, explores the intersection between environmental governance, rural livelihoods, and everyday life and politics in uh, rural India. Uh, some of the themes that I have been engaging with are political ecology, water, uh, water governance, hazards and disaster, island studies, and agrarian studies. Um, so I have I'm trained as an uh, interdisciplinary scholar. I did my PhD. Uh, in geography from Syracuse University, where I was, uh, I would say I was mainly trained in political ecology. You would know that, you know, Syracuse geography has a kind of strong tradition of nature society geography. So I was very privileged to be there. Uh, but before that, I did a master's in environmental studies from SUNY College of Environmental Science and Forestry. Uh, and prior to that, I did a master's in uh, social work from the Tata Institute of social sciences in Mumbai. And prior to that, I studied history. So I've been in, in various kind of uh, disciplines. I have also worked for you know a little over six years with an environmental NGO called Foundation for Ecological Security, uh, FES shortly, in, uh, in Western part of India, where my work particularly focused on restoring degraded common property resources, particularly forest, uh, you know, pasture land and water bodies. Uh, so this book uh, um, resulted out of my PhD dissertation, which I did at Syracuse. Uh, uh, but it's uh, it's also uh, a lot of new work. So I finished my PhD in 2016, and then I joined Osuka University in India. So between 2016 and 2020, I carried out uh, uh, more fieldwork in in Majuli um, uh, in Assam. Uh, and in fact, uh, two chapters uh, out of six in the book are uh, fresh work, which were not part of my PhD. 
but uh, I must say that there is a, a far deeper root to this uh, project. Uh, you know, it goes actually uh, uh, far back. So uh, just to give a context, I I was born and raised in Majuli, uh, which is a river island. In fact, I believe to be the largest river island in the world. Uh, so I grew up there. Uh, you know, witnessing flood and erosion, uh, riverbank erosion on a kind of regular basis. Uh, uh, you know, our houses would get flooded and we would move to like a raised sort of platform and or we would live for days on a boat um, and, and places that I grew up sort of, you know, like uh, playing and uh, or, or, or farming, etc. have kind of disappeared and they, they, they were eroded and so on and so forth. So I've kind of seen some of that uh, very closely. Uh, growing up, but uh, but frankly, I mean, you know, they didn't kind of bother me like as a disaster back then. I mean, it was, you know, I was young and flood was actually fun. I mean, flood meaning, you know, we go swim, we kind of go catch fish and all kinds of stuff. We were on the boat all the time. So it was actually fun. Uh, but, uh, you know, so later though, when I kind of started reflecting on these processes and actually thinking about how Majuli, the island has transformed over the years, um, I developed a keen interest to understand these processes academically. So this kind of is something that I uh, proposed uh, for my kind of, you know, as my PhD project, uh, uh, you know, in 2010, when I began my PhD. Uh, and, and very interestingly, you know, I kind of, uh, I was also interested, I got interested to study this because uh, uh, there was actually, I was very surprised to see that, you know, the way, say, the island Majuli was transformed, transforming or way even Assam as a whole, the Brahmaputra Valley was changing because of flood and erosion. I mean, just to just to give you a figure that, you know, between uh, just in the second half of the 20th century, the Brahmaputra Valley in Assam lost about 8% of its total land mass, which is huge. Uh, and, uh, and and in places like Majuli have been regularly affected by flood and erosion and, you know, like so many villages and um, wetlands, etc. have disappeared. But there's very little work, really. There was very, very little academic engagement with this uh, issue. So I really wanted to kind of study that. Uh, so, yeah, that's how this kind of project began. Um, so, you know. So I would say that I think this book is uh, both for me, one, it's an academic uh, pursuit, it's an academic project, but it's also for me more of a personal sort of uh, journey. It's a tribute to the island that I call home. So that's how I kind of started the PhD and which eventually ended up with slow disaster. So that's how I guess the book was born. All right. So let's set the scene. Uh, tell us what is Majuli and how is it being reshaped by the river? Okay, great. Uh, Majuli is a river island. It is located in the middle of the Brahmaputra River, which is a gigantic river. Brahmaputra is, uh, we call the mighty Brahmaputra. So it's a transnational river that starts in origins, uh, originates in Tibet where it is called Yarnung Sangpo, then it flows into Northeast India to the state Arunachal Pradesh, then to Assam. And then from Assam, it goes to uh, Bangladesh. Uh, so throughout, it's changing its names and meeting several tributaries. And from Bangladesh, then it goes to the Bay of Bengal. It's a huge river, runs for roughly 3,000 kilometers. It's got a river basin of roughly 
580,000 square kilometer and you know like uh, dozens of tributaries meet the river in Assam alone so uh, it's a huge river it also is the second largest river in terms of the sediment that it carries after yellow river in China so uh, so that's the kind of river I'm talking about so in in the Assam section of the Brahmaputra uh, because of the specific uh, you know, like the hydrological, the fluvial, geomorphological processes of the river, you know, uh, there are various kind of islands that appear. These are we call chor uh, in local language, chor or chaporis, uh, which are basically riverine islands formed due to the sediment that the river carries. And they kind of, some of them are very transitory. They can stay for some time and disappear. Some last for really long. So Majuli is one of those chores or one of those islands. It's located in Assam. Uh, and it was not originally an island. Uh, in fact, uh, Brahmaputra was flowing uh, to the south of what is Majuli now. And uh, but roughly, you know, around the uh, 1720s, uh, kind of it's a little debatable. But you know, just around that time between 1720s and 1750s, you know, a series of sort of earthquake happened there, which led to. Uh, the Brahmaputra actually changed its course. Uh, one huge stream of the Brahmaputra started flowing to the north of the island. So that's how Majuli became an island. Um, it is uh, it is the uh, second, it, sorry, it is considered to be the largest uh, river island in the world. It's inhabited uh, by various different communities. It's got a population of roughly 170,000 people. Uh, the island was, as per census, uh, around 1901, it had a landmass of roughly 1,255 square kilometer. Today, it's reduced to close to uh, something like 500 square kilometer. So to come to your question as to how Majuli has been reshaped, uh, you know, uh, over these years, what's been happening is a continuous process of riverbank erosion so uh, and flood comes along with it so the, the island gets flooded every year in multiple waves which of course lead to all kinds of processes such as you know like displacement of people a lot of people have out migrated um, you know so on and so forth but also erosion is uh, more of a big deal because a lot of places uh, over time have disappeared uh, and one of those are particularly Maduli was well known for its wetlands. It has it has many many kind of you know historic wetlands which have been eroded. Um, you know Maduli has a lot of grasslands at some point. In fact, I remember growing up those have gone. A um, lot of people from the island have over time uh, moved out of the island. Uh, today, as per government. Um, statistics roughly 10,000 families on the island are considered homeless so um, you know so yeah so it's because of these twin processes of flood and erosion that the island has lost a lot of its landmass uh, a lot of its wetlands and other kind of uh, you know kind of natural features people have moved out it has also had a tremendous impact on livelihoods of local communities and uh, particularly kind of agrarian or, or fishery-based uh, or pottery, that kind of sort of natural resource-based livelihoods have been reshaped completely. Uh, I mean, I can elaborate on those, which I discuss at length in the book. Um, so yeah, so um, what's also I, I should highlight that, you know, so this, uh, you know, because of the uh, sort of specific characteristics of the Brahmaputra, Majuli is not 
one contiguous, not just one island, okay? So Majuli, there is one huge island, uh, but then there are these smaller riverine islands surrounding the main island. So, so all of those are also going through transformations, all those smaller ones. Some of them have disappeared and some of them kind of, you know, uh, have been newly formed. So a lot of people from the main island have moved to some of those, uh, you know, so, so on and so forth. So it's kind of a very interesting sort of uh, uh, ecology, I should say. And uh, it's going through a lot of changes, but these changes have been slow. They have not happened overnight. And they have been so slow that they sometimes go unnoticed and, and, and no one talks about it, actually. Yeah, that's a great segue into the next question that I had, which was, you're proposing this term slow disaster as an analytical term. So how would you define this slow disaster and how would you distinguish it from related concepts concepts like a creeping environmental problem or slow violence right right yeah so uh, slow disasters are as i as i describe in the book they are incremental accretive and non-spectacular right so unlike say catastrophic events such as you know you can talk about a volcanic volcanic eruption or earthquake or a tsunami or a cyclone for that matter so those are kind of you know um Sort of catastrophic events and they happen like suddenly and they make it to big news headlines and, and as they must so you know so uh unlike those slow disasters are uh are kind of more like ongoing long-term very low-grade sort of phenomena okay so like i explained to you riverbank erosion in majuli uh is uh is one of the classic examples of you know slow disasters like majuli has transformed but it has happened so slowly. Like I'll tell you, uh, I'll give you an example. Like one entire landmass on the western part of the island, which is a, which was an administrative block called Ahatguri, that by now has completely disappeared. But that disappearance itself took place over several decades. You know, slowly, bit by bit. So, so it's a process that, uh, and 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 and. And say the, one of my research villages called Salmora that I study, and that village uh, itself, that's in fact at some point that was the they said that was the large, second largest village in Assam. Uh, but this Salmora village, it exists there; it is still there, but uh, uh, it kept uh, sort of uh, moving inward, right towards the island because the river kept coming in and in, and a lot of chunks of its uh, land mass have disappeared, and something roughly about 600 families from the village have over time, uh, you know, moved out of the island, went to kind of gone to different places. Um, Majuli had many dozens of wetlands, like I earlier mentioned, and those wetlands have uh, slowly, slowly disappeared. Again, you know, it's such a process that it's not that a wetland is there and it's gone. It doesn't happen that way. But what instead happens is, you know, like a part of the wetland might have been eroded and the, and one part might have got silted and, uh, or, um, you know, or even anthropogenic processes, right? People then, you know, because it's no longer functioning like a wetland and people start encroaching it on it and kind of, you know, cultivating it and so on and so forth. So these changes have happened really, really slowly. Now, um, so, and it's not really just, uh, you know, when I say slow disaster, when I define this kind of uh, term, I'm not only referring to the event that is flood and erosion. Uh, uh, an immediate effect, right? But also uh, 
a kind of whole kind of you know like ensemble of things that come along with it for example okay you know livelihoods uh, people have lost their traditional livelihoods uh, but then you know one way to redress that is that you know the state can step in you know the state can step in and sort of you know create some alternative livelihoods and help them resettle and rehabilitate and all that but the state just you know does hasn't paid enough attention to them so over time if you look at these people over time uh it's uh you know they're trying out different kinds of livelihoods some some working some not working but there's a sort of a deepening there's a deepening sense of vulnerability of these people so over time they become really more and more vulnerable you know they lost their agri agricultural land to um you know uh, erosion they're trying out something new Next flood comes, next erosion comes, they're worst hit again, and they try something else. So what really happens is over time, these people are becoming more and more vulnerable. So when I'm talking about slow disaster, I'm talking about making of this entire process from the uh, you know, event of flood and erosion to what happens after and all that. Now, how is it, um, how is slow disaster you know, different from uh, you know, creating environmental phenomena or or slow violence. I guess I draw a lot on these um, ideas. You know, I also draw on some of the uh, you know classic work in geography. You know, political ecology work like Blakey's you know soil erosion, Blakey and Brookfield's work. So those work have influenced my uh, idea of uh, you know shaped my this idea of slow disaster. But I think. Something like a creeping environmental phenomena, I think a couple of problems there. One is that that concept looked at disaster and whether a disaster, you know, a phenomena, a hazard, when it becomes disaster or not, more in a linear fashion. So they talk about threshold, you know. So they say, for example, okay, up to some point, it is a natural phenomenon. But beyond that threshold, it becomes disaster, uh, right? Uh, so I I kind of challenge that idea of a threshold. I feel like some with something like flood, which is which was actually originally not a you know for a long time in history it was not a disaster at all. It was a natural process that people kind of uh, uh, you know kind of you know look forward to uh, for various reasons. Now that the flood has been turned into disaster, but because of particular interventions, so there is really no threshold. You can have a very low grade uh you know like a uh, flood event which is uh, not really leading to any sort of you know uh, uh, sort of any huge you know destruction or any death or any kind of you know uh, but it's still kind of it is still causing all sorts of problems to people right so uh, so there is no threshold what i'm saying is that flood and erosion are in total they are now disastrous they also i also bring in this whole idea of kind of rule of uh, uh, you know, like colonization, which ideas again, like creeping environmental phenomena, don't really look into at all. Uh, so I saw in my work how flood, flood control, you know, the flood, the, the fact that flood has become disastrous is rooted in the idea of colonial flood control. So, you know, so we really have to kind of take history uh, seriously in trying to understand, you know, these kind of processes. Slow violence, uh, slow violence is. Uh, uh, you know, Rob Nixon's slow violence has been pretty helpful. In fact, I think slow disaster is very similar to what he calls kind of, you know, Rob Nixon kind of talks about the way he talks about slow violence. Uh, but something that is interesting is that 
in case of slow violence that Nixon talks about, all of those instances were result of something catastrophe, right? So when he's talking about, uh, say, uh, you know, like Chernobyl uh, and what happens after, or when he's talking about, uh, uh, you know, Bhopal gas tragedy and what happens after. So the starting point is something catastrophe, you know, that has made it to news, that has been talked about, you know. So, but it is slow disaster, the way I talk about, is very different. There is no catastrophic moment. There is no one single moment when flood and erosion led to something, uh, something, you know, like spectacular in Assam. But yet, it's it's uh, it's uh, going on. It's creeping. It has over time. If you really look at in a more non-spectacular way, it has completely transformed the landscape. You know. In fact, I argue that I think uh, we really need to probably rewrite the history of Assam by 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 foregrounding flooding and erosion. I think they are at the heart of reshaping the Brahmaputra Valley. So so that's how I kind of you know I I I emphasize on this new uh, framing of slow slow disaster as opposed to using creeping environmental phenomena or slow violence. Okay. So then I loved this quote from one of the people that you talked to, and they said, the river is very delicate. It should be touched with love. So can you elaborate on that? What, what does it mean to touch the river with love? And why is that not what's currently happening. You reminded me of that moment, you know. So I was, I was really sitting with this uh, old man on his uh, kind of, you know, veranda of his house, which is kind of, uh, you know, facing the uh, river, the Brahmaputra. But you could hardly see the river. It's like the river is so close from his house, but you can't see because what you see, as I describe in the book, are the kind of, you know varieties of kind of uh, say JCB and dumpers and all of those kind of uh, basically uh, machineries that are there to build like an embankment or or building what is called uh, the boulder spar and all of those sort of infrastructure to control, to tame the river, uh, to redirect its flow. So it is in that context. And uh, he said uh, in, in my language, in Assamese, actually he says, Nodikhan Borkumol. Uh, you know, uh, uh, so it's very hard to translate. I tried my best. So it, it yeah, roughly translates. It's 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 very delicate. The river it should be touched with love because I think he's he's seen. You know, he was kind of really talking about how he has seen the river over time transformed. You know, and and with all this engineering kind of methods, how uh, kind of you know the flow of the river, the flow of the sediment, everything has been completely. Uh, sort of reconfigured, you know. So, so that actually, um, I should tell you a little bit about the kind of history of, uh, in fact, flood control in this context. You know, like, uh, you know, like in places like Majuli, Majuli River Island, flood and river bank erosion. These are natural uh, phenomena. Historically, people waited for flood, particularly uh, because you know flood meant uh, uh, alluvium. Flood also meant, uh, you know, it helped irrigation, it brings in fish, it kind of cleanses the landscape, and then it helps irrigating the paddy and so on. So people waited for flooding. Um, it was not a disaster, it was not a calamity. It was during the colonial period that they dis decided that flood has to be controlled, you know, and that the river has to be tamed, and, uh, and there has to be a separation between the land and water. So, uh, so they started 
building these embankments, okay? And uh, they, these embankments proliferated so fast uh, all over the country, but definitely in Assam and Marjuli that, you know, most of the rivers kind of, you know, now are uh, kind of embanked, right? There are embankments along most of the rivers. Um, so uh, it is it is just the opposite of, uh, you know, touching the river with love, right? It's not really, you know, earlier, earlier as another person said, the river would come in uh, during monsoon and it will recede gracefully, right? So that was a natural process. Now that you build these embankments and embankments are not the only infrastructure uh, in the post-independence era, the state has brought in a whole range of other infrastructures. I can name a few such as you know, like something called RCC, Parkupine, uh, you know, Boulder Spars, you know, geobags, geomatrices, and, you know, many, many other kinds of infrastructures, basically almost like, you know, the river is totally like a bandaged sort of an entity, you know. Um, so it has completely affected the flow of the river uh, and it has affected the flow of its sediments. Uh, it has now turned a lot of wetlands inside the island to absolutely dead bodies because now the fresh water doesn't come in at all because the embankments have stopped um, you know the flow of the river so um, so it is um, in a way we have sort of you know the state flood control mechanisms have been so technocratic so top down and uh, it is only you know only thing that they do is build another embankment, you know, like uh, just control, tame, you know, these are terminologies, these are words that civil engineers love to use, you know, taming, harnessing, controlling, and so on and so forth. So, um, so that, you know, none of that is, uh, they're very, just, just the opposite of touching the river with love, right? So, um, so yeah, uh, but, but, the, the, but we continue with that, you know, we, we continue with, same set of measures you know when i was when i was doing my field work in one of my research villages uh this was 2013 uh during the flood season one of the uh you know concrete spar was under construction uh and the river came really furiously and it toppled the sort of you know the boulder spar which meant you know, tons of boulders which really went and hit like the entire neighborhood and Sort of you know destroyed their houses you know you know so so this is what happens when you really kind of interfere with the river so much with such huge sort of engineering infrastructural devices so 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 the call that this person made was to touch it with love so that don't sort of uh don't uh mess around so much you know don't you don't have to build so many infrastructures you know probably there has to be a wiser way of living with the river, living with flood and erosion. So if that makes sense. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So what are some of the ways that the people living in Majuli have both ad adapted to and tried to resist some of the, the slow disaster that's happening to them? Yeah, um, well, um, 
you know, I mean, the first thing is that the sad part is that people are not given a lot of chance to, uh, you know, deal with some of these processes and adapt because, you know, the state always comes in heavy handed and try to, uh, you know, try to control, try to build something, right? You know, this this obsession with infrastructure. So so that's, that's, that's a context that one has to keep in mind. So it's not so easy for people to now at least, you know, uh, adapt because the processes have become now uh, very disastrous, you know. So, so, so to kind of go back a little bit, you know. So if there was a way to adapt to flood when it was more of a natural phenomenon, like like early, earlier I said flood comes in and, you know, recedes gracefully, that's not the case anymore. So now that an embankment is built, so the area that is protected by embankment, uh, there may not be regular flood. But when flood happens, it is catastrophic because it really it breaches the embankment and it comes suddenly. And um, so people aren't really prepared for such processes. Right. Uh, so so things have changed. But in any case, um, yes, traditionally, there have been several things that people are doing to to live with this uh, this natural phenomenon uh, phenomena. One is that. Uh, a lot of people, uh, you know, this particular one community that I study called missing, missing community. So they always have lived uh, in stilt houses. So the houses are built on raised sort of, you know, platform made of, made of bamboo because they live uh, very close to the river bank. So, you know, that helps them to deal with flood, right? Now, interestingly, um, another community, which uh, is a community of potters, uh, whom I study, uh, and they traditionally were not living in stilt houses, but in past uh, few decades, they have entire community have switched to stilt houses so that that's uh, they are more sort of flood proof. Um, so that's one about housing, right? And then people have, uh, you know, if they can afford, uh, more or less every household on the island have a small sort of country boat. So that is, they are like, really like, uh, that's like a light boat, right? So they depend on it during monsoon very much to sometimes live on it. Uh, if the house is submerged, sometimes uh, use it to go get uh, fodder for the cattle, use it to, you know, kind of uh, uh, for various purposes, like uh, uh, buying, you know, groceries or, you know, uh, sort of catching fish and so on and so forth um, to use the boat, using the boat to go defecate because toilets, everything is submerged. So the boat is one thing that people normally also make on their own. A lot of people are very skilled on the island. They make their own boat, small boats. Um, so that's these are kind of ways that they on their own try to uh, cope with uh, uh, flooding. Also, another thing is about, um, you know, the cropping. Right. So even though the, the government agriculture department kind of emphasizes on, you know, certain kind of crops, you know, cash crops being one of them. But historically, people have grown things that are suitable, uh, suitable for this uh, environment. And uh, they have depended very much on actually, you know, uh, alluvium that the floodwater brings in. Um, so, uh, hmm, trying to think. So, uh, then, then, then there has been also a very, very interesting and very strong sort of, you know, I would say kind of a moral economy among these uh, communities. They have, like I have witnessed growing up, there are various ways of people helping one another. You know, someone's just lost their house. Other people contribute their, uh, you know, material from wood to bamboo, etc., and kind of try to help them, you know, build the house. 
Um, so, um, you know, sometimes people have, uh, you know, there are people who cannot afford like a raised platform where they can kind of migrate to during, uh, during, uh, uh, flood season but some other people have probably they're a little better off so they invite them and you know they, they share those spaces often people uh very ironically you know they 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 move to the embankments you know because embankments are kind of high uh so they move there during flood time and these are things that they do on their own um so uh but in terms of you use the word how do they resist uh uh the slow disaster i i guess uh, they don't they can't probably resist flood and erosion from taking place uh, but what they do is they have been trying various ways of you know like uh, sort of trying to pressurize the state right because as i argue the state is it's a disastrous state right the state has contributed actively to produce uh, hazards produce these you know hazardscapes on the island so this, what the people have been doing over time is uh, you know, resorting to various sort of everyday forms of resistance, kind of putting pressure on the state so that, uh, you know, there are better sort of governance of uh, flooding and erosion. So so these are range of things that uh, that people on the island have been doing on their own. You know, another thing I must mention is, um, you know, finding their own livelihoods, right? So uh, I'll give an example. One community that I have studied is a community of, uh, that's a fishing community. And the whole village was known in Majuli as like, you know, like a fisherman's village, uh, large village, the entire community used to do com com completely rely on fishing. And now over time, because wetlands have uh, sort of, you know, dried up or, or, uh, or been eroded, or there is not so much of fish population inside because of kind of lack of water coming in timely. Uh, in a timely manner. So like their fishing as a livelihood is no longer very viable. So, uh, but there isn't really any support uh, from, they don't have any external support, nor from the state, nor from any non-state actors. So what these people have done is they have very creatively, they have found their own kind of new kind of livelihoods. They now switch to something called goat trading. That is, they don't do goat rearing, but, you know, they go around on a bicycle, uh, like very far, 50 to 70 kilometers and kind of you know procure goats and then they bring those goats home and they take those to the across the river to the market to sell and you know so they are kind of doing the, those sort of uh, you know different kinds of trying out different sort of livelihoods on their own you know just to kind of uh, adjust with these uh, dire sort of situations yeah okay and then another interesting thing about Majuli is that it's the center of the neo vaishnavite religious movement so what's the connection between this religion and the slow disasters that are happening there? Hmm. That's a great question. Um, yes, Majuli, you know, this is this uh, medieval era, uh, you know, 15th century Neo-Vaishnavite. This was in Assam, this was called a Neo-Vaishnavite Renaissance that, uh, you know, was started by this uh, great saint called Srimanta Sankardeva. Um, you know, who was uh, really legendary kind of, you know, um, so he, the, in fact, the first monastery, so this, as part of this, uh, this uh, neo-Vaishnavism is, uh, uh, there are these Vais Hindu monasteries, uh, 
so the first one, in fact, was set up in Majuli. I, I guess the reason being it's a kind of, you know, it's an island, very peaceful, rather cut off. And so th those could be reasons. Uh, so Sankaldeva set up the first uh, Satra. They, those monasteries are called Satras. And the guru of these monasteries are called Satradhikar. So now the first one was set up there, which eventually led to many, many more. So got like even now, like roughly three dozen of these Satras in Majuli. Um, so these are kind of, institutions were uh where a lot of uh, uh kind of either the satradhikar or that is the guru and a lot of disciples and they practice various kinds of Vaishnavite uh, cultural uh rituals and it's got a, you know satriya dance by the way is considered one of the classical dances in india so the satriya dance music and you know so it's it's a very kind of very uh lively rich sort of environment within these sort of monasteries and Majuli is a hub of it. Uh, now, what's the relations between these satras and the disaster is, uh, you know, um, uh, well, you know, the satras have been historically, they have enjoyed a lot of state patronage. Hmm. All rulers, even pre-British, the, the medieval era, the Ahom, uh, you know, the Ahom dynasty that ruled in Assam for 600 years. So they gave a lot of state patronage to these satras. Uh, some of the satradhikars became uh, sort of uh, in a guru of Ahom rulers, and then uh, they helped set up more branches elsewhere. So the satras have received during the, 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 the uh, pre-colonial time a lot of kind of land grants from the, from the Ahom dynasty. The same continued in the colonial era. So the satradhikars, in fact, uh, uh, interestingly, uh, in Majuli, and I must say this, that, you know, most of the satradhikars uh, sort of sided with the British during the during our kind of, you know, national independence movement, because the the, the colonial state kind of helped them with, with land and resources and so on. And these satras, satras own huge swaths of land, okay, across the state and definitely within Majuli. Um, and and that the same thing continued post independence too. So what has happened is you know so you see this continued sort of uh, I would say even conformism right in the satra politics. So they have hardly ever uh, except one satradhikar who was called Pitambar Devagoshami, legendary figure uh, who was the satradhikar of this satra called Garamur Satra, who actually who was the only one in fact fought against the British and went to jail. Um, but most others have sided with. Uh, uh, kind of, you know, the, always with the ruling regime. Now, now, how it is uh, connected, how these satras are connected to the slow disaster is, uh, is that uh, uh, in, in, in two ways, I would say, right? One is what one expects um, in a situation like Majuli where such, um, such dramatic, changes have happened, right? Loss of livelihoods, loss of so many uh, places and thousands of people have out-migrated, thousands are homeless and, you know, all of this. So in a context like that, you would imagine there should be, uh, and much of this is, by the way, as I say, is because of the way the state has dealt with these processes of flood and erosion. So you'd expect that there should be a social movement. Right, people should come out and kind of protest, and you know, like, um, uh, yeah, and because similar things have happened elsewhere, like where uh, erosion and in Assam itself, like you know, flood and erosion affected places, 
in the upstream of the Brahmaputra, where there have been very active, strong social movement. But the same is missing in Majuli, right? And and one of the key reasons is that the Satradhikars have very actively uh, sort of discouraged uh, anything like that uh, from happening. They have, in fact, uh, um, you know, whenever there was an attempt, uh, you know, even to mobilize and, you know, take out like a sit-in or like any sort of protest, they have never supported this. They have, in fact, very actively discouraged. So, uh, um, and uh, so, so there is this, but on the other hand, the Satrajikas are very powerful, right? They are very close to the, uh, close to the government and ruling regime. So then it becomes very difficult uh, for the public, for the masses to really, um, you know, do something, you know, like do something radical and, you know, protest against the state and its action, right? So that's one way how the Satratikars have, I would say, derailed the possibility of a of an active social movement on the island. That would have probably helped, that would have led to some kind of better kind of governance from the, uh, by the state, right? So the second is that these Satras are, um, they, unlike the rest of the masses on the island, the Satras have a uh, lot of resources, right? They have a lot of land. Um, they, uh, you know, within island, within the island and outside, and uh, uh, they get a lot of grants from the uh, from the state. So they can do actually much more in terms of, you know, yes, it's important that they should continue to kind of engage in the cultural realm and, you know, promote the Vaishnavism and all of that. But they can, I guess, do much more in terms of, uh, uh, you know. In terms of uh, uh, helping a lot of these people who are who are dispossessed, who are kind of you know like uh, who have been kind of homeless and who've lost their livelihood, so satras can I think do a lot more with their resource. And in fact, I would add one more thing that is uh, um, in recent times there have been this demand for Majuli to be declared a UNESCO World Heritage Site, and uh, in fact the the Archaeological Survey of India. Uh, of government of India have already submitted the dossier to to the UNESCO uh, for Majuli to be declared a you know uh, cultural heritage site. Um, now it has not happened yet, but that's the that's the uh, kind of that's that's ongoing demand as well as uh, a lot is going on now to get that recognition. So it is in this process that you know satra, satras have you know like really really sort of you know almost fetishize the cultural aspect of the island, you know, like throughout the year now you find, uh, you know, like uh, uh, all kinds of festivals and kind of, you know, very different celebrations and reinventing uh, sort of, you know, uh, things uh, just to kind of promote, the, you know, the cultural aspect of the island, even at the cost of, uh, you know, this very kind of ecological crisis that the island is facing, it's almost not talked about, you know. What we're talking about is, you know, Majuli as the land of the Satras, Majuli as the land of this, uh, the Bhavna festival, Majuli's, uh, you know, ethnic culture, Majuli's kind of food festival, so on and so forth. So it's, it's kind of, and it's become like a tourist hub. So I think, uh, again, there it's a very much kind of, uh, all of those are happening very much uh, with the support of the Satras. So I think, it's probably not direct, but indirectly, these, uh, there is a connection between the, uh, you know, the Vaishnavite uh, uh, satras and the slow disaster that's happening in Bajuli.
All right. So as we're now moving towards the end of our time, I wanted to give you an opportunity to give a shout out or a thank you to anyone whose help was important to you as you were writing this book. Okay. Yeah, of course. There are so many. Um, I, so I have dedicated the book to the people of Majuli, um, all people of all walks of life in Majuli, from kind of villagers to politicians to activists, students, you know. So Satratikars, in fact, they have all helped me uh, in many, many ways uh, in this project. So I want to thank them again. Um, I certainly want to thank my PhD committee at Syracuse uh, Geography Department. Uh, they were absolutely phenomenal and kind of, you know, my advisor Farhana Sultana and the entire committee. Uh, they were very, very helpful. So I'm grateful to them. Uh, I'm grateful to them for their absolutely uh, razor sharp critique of my project as it was happening. Um, I want to thank uh, my publisher, Taylor Francis, and uh, my editor, uh, you know, Faye Lurink. Um, you know, numerous friends and families, my partner, our dog. Um, yeah, so this, this is an endless list, you know, but I, I, I want to actually uh, say one more thing that uh, in, in this uh, thanking uh, is that I also want to acknowledge my own privilege. Uh, you know, last few years, two, three years, we've seen so much of a crisis happening globally, right, because of the pandemic. Uh, so... I would say, despite all that, it was during that phase of, you know, a global pandemic, uh, you know, so much of suffering, so many people have suffered across the world that I could, I was privileged enough that I could sort of, you know, sit down and write this book and complete this project. So I, I uh, it's it's quite humbling and I, I feel grateful. So I want to acknowledge that too. Yep. All right. And then that brings us to our traditional final question, which is, what are you working on next? Yeah, sure. Uh, I am uh, working on two projects uh, now. One is uh, I'm uh, I'm actually making a documentary film uh, on Majuli, uh, which is uh, which is part of we have a center at Osaka University called Center for Climate Change and Sustainability. So it's part of that uh, a grant from the center. I'm looking at with a with a bunch of other friends like cinematographers and so on. So this is a documentary looking at uh, sort of layered everyday life on the island in the context of uh, climate change and uh, you know disasters like flooding and erosion that I have discussed. And in that, I of course this is a this is a uh, you know a step next to my book. So I'm kind of talking about uh, new stuff. I mean we're looking at kind of new stuffs. Uh, for this documentary, especially the whole question of you know human non-human relations. So there is a story in that documentary about a story of a, a buffalo herder and his you know 250 plus buffaloes <laughs> roaming in the on one of the river islands. And uh, so there are those interesting stories. So this is a documentary. It's in the process. We finished shooting, and it should be out uh, later this year. So I'm very excited about it. Um, the other project is. Uh, I'm just starting, this is, I kind of, you know, tentatively I title it uh, as a swamp ecology. So this is basically uh, zooming into something that I just touched uh, upon for the book, that is the question of wetlands. So, but in this project, I really want to go back and uh, look at the whole story of wetlands uh, in Majuli. Like I like I mentioned, Majuli is, uh, is uh, known for 
kind of, you know, like numerous wetlands and many have disappeared over time, but still there are many. So in this project, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to combine uh, oral history with ethnography. So I'm trying to get a sense of, uh, you know, uh, the history, kind of a historical understanding of the, these wetlands and their transformations, talking to various people. But I'm also trying to combine that with, uh, uh, you know, how do these wetlands matter to people and their everyday life? You know, what are some of the cultural significance of these wetlands? So, so I'm trying to kind of, uh, uh, you know, combine uh, this uh, ethnography and oral history to, uh, you know, get a better understanding of this swamp ecologies in Majulid, which I think will also tell us a lot about, uh, you know, the swamps of Assam in general. So these are two things I'm working on, and the swamp ecologies is. Uh, I'm I'm hoping it will be my next book. So that's something I'm I'm just starting out. Yeah. All right. Well, I'll definitely be keeping an eye out for both of those projects, and maybe we'll have you back on to talk about the Swamp Ecology book. It's uh, my pleasure. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks a lot. Thank you, thank you very much for having me. This has been a conversation with Matul Barua, author of Slow Disaster: The Political Ecology of Hazards in Everyday Life in the Brahmaputra Valley, Assam, published this year by Rutledge.